Good morning. Good morning, everyone. A very warm welcome to everybody here in London and all of you who are online or from around the globe. And we have many online. The Statistical Review is a truly global project. We collect data from hundreds of sources worldwide. So my first job is to say thank you to everyone in governments, agencies, and companies around the world who kindly share that data with us. The data enables us to build a comprehensive picture of the world's evolving energy landscape. We can see where the energy reserves lie, where they're produced, and where they are consumed, and how they get from producers to consumers. It's a picture that not only records the year gone by, but enables us to see how the big trends in energy are playing out year after year. This is a very long wavelength industry, and we need to be able to plan for decades ahead. We now have half a century of data from past statistical reviews to help us do that, as well as the projections we publish in our forward-looking BP Energy Outlook. Some years, the changes are very predictable and incremental, and other years, they're more dramatic. And 2014 certainly falls into the second dramatic category. In a few moments, Spencer will talk us through the numbers and give us his perspectives on these changes, whether they are game-changing shifts or something that's more cyclical. But let me just whet your appetite for this banquet of statistics from Spencer that the team has prepared. I'd like to pick out three key shifts, three questions they raise, and three signals to pick up as we plan ahead. First and foremost is a big supply side shift with the transformation that has taken hold in the United States. Spencer will give us the data, but it's clear the shale revolution hasn't run out of steam in the U.S., and oil production is also strong in Canada and Brazil. The big question is whether this can continue, and if so, for how long? Can the shale producers keep improving their technology and efficiency, lowering their cost, and go on producing profitably at the prevailing price level? We're all watching that now in the industry. And if this does continue, then how does it change the landscape in terms of global energy supplies? Are we seeing a permanent shift towards the West in the center of gravity for production? And will we be seeing more trade going west to east instead of vice versa? It's interesting to note that as a group, the OECD countries are now producing more energy and consuming less. That means all the growth is coming from the emerging economies. Let's not forget we live in a world where a billion people still don't have access to electricity, and access to energy can transform lives and enable growth. Despite that underlying demand, the second very striking development last year was a slowdown in the aggregate growth of global energy demand. Global primary energy consumption increased by a little under 1%, and that is the slowest growth rate since the late 1990s, except for the period right after the financial crisis. This slowdown is partly due to a much slower growth of energy consumption in China. The Chinese economy will grow. Uh, It still grew pretty strongly, which is over 7%, but energy demand grew by only 2.6%. 
So there are some big questions here, too. Is China's industrialization tailing off? Is China's economy shifting in a structural way from the most energy-intensive industries like cement and steel, or were these temporary adjustments? Now, Spencer will explore these in more detail, but if, if you've been to China recently, as Spencer and I both have, you'll no doubt have noted the real determination among Chinese officials and policymakers to realign the economy and its energy mix. That takes us to the third striking development, which is the marked impact that slower growth had on carbon emissions. Global emissions from energy use grew at the lowest rate since 1998, again, excepting that short, immediate post-financial crisis period. The 0.5% rate of emissions growth in 2014 compares with an average of 2% a year over the past decade. So why did this happen? Was it cyclical or does it herald a structural shift? Again, the answer to that question appears to depend heavily on developments in China and the pace at which it becomes less energy intensive and more energy efficient. So greater energy efficiency is one driver for lower emissions, but the other is switching from higher to lower carbon energy, and that also continued to happen in 2014. Renewables made up almost a third of the growth in energy demand, supported by policy incentives in many regions of the world, although they still accounted for only 3% of all energy consumption. You can actually achieve larger emissions reductions by switching from coal to gas, and it's interesting to note that switching just 1% of coal-fired power generation to gas-fired power cuts will cut cuts emissions by about the same amount as increasing renewable output by 11 percent. But in 2014, both gas and coal grew by only 0.4 percent, and the overall trajectory of emissions is higher than scientists recommend. So let me conclude here with a few possible signals from the data that we see here. First, the apparent resilience of supply and ever-increasing size of oil inventories mean we have to be prepared for life in a lower oil price world. The $100-plus plateau of the years leading up to 2014 now feels like ancient history. It was the exception, not the rule. I think we're back to business as usual. Second, and related, our industry has to respond. We need to maintain discipline on capital and costs and adjust to this new world. We need to run safe and reliable, simple and efficient businesses. We need to constrain capital spending, and we need to reschedule our projects. But we also need to make the right choices about where to keep investing. Now, third, if carbon emissions are to be brought to a tolerable level, something more needs to be done, and something substantial, while we continue to provide energy for development and growth. We are conscious of this dilemma at BP, which is why we joined with a number of our fellow oil and gas companies last week to call for a global price on carbon. The logic here is simple, and it's based on the power of the market forces. The extraordinary shale revolution currently taking place in the U.S. is a great example. It's a great example of the 
potential of the market to innovate, invest, and drive efficiency gains, if given the right incentives. We now need to unleash market forces to drive a wedge between energy growth and emissions growth. Put a price on carbon, and you make the lower carbon route also the lower cost route, encouraging efficiency, renewables, and gas instead of coal, or other solutions we can't even yet imagine. In BP, we're positioning ourselves for this transition with a portfolio where gas makes up half of our production and and growing, as well as a significant biofuels operation and a wind business. And we encourage policymakers to move forward on this when they meet in December. Whatever happens, the results will be chronicled year by year in this stats review. It's a great resource for us. And I hope you see it as a great resource for your needs, too. So let me thank Spencer, and thanks again to your team. I'm going to turn it over to you for an economist's perspective on the events of the last year. Spencer. Uh, Thank you, uh, Bob, uh, and thank you to everyone for sparing the time today uh, for the launch of the BP Stats Review, both here in London and those of you who are joining uh, around the world. And it's really nice to see quite a few familiar faces who we all got here, we all were in this room in in February uh, of this year for the launch of the BP's Energy Outlook 2035. The the mission then, our task then in February, was to look forward uh, 20 years The task today is to use the BP Stats Review to look back over the events of of 2014. I've been in BP sort of seven or eight months now, and and during that period of time, I've really come to appreciate sort of the value and trust placed on the BP Statistical Review uh, by governments, uh, by commentators, and perhaps most importantly of all, by the energy industry. For me, this was really brought home to me when I was speaking to, to Dan Jurgen, who many of you will know. Dan Jurgen, the author of the prize, surely the undisputed king of oil market analysts. And Dan said to me, I keep two things in my briefcase uh, just in case, uh, my passport and a copy of the BP Stats Review. If it's good enough for Dan, it's certainly uh, good enough uh, for me. That trust uh, and importance um, has been earned in the stats review, has been earned over a number of years by the care and attention the team uh, take when compiling um, the data. As one of the team members said to me a couple of weeks ago, we sweat the data so you guys don't have to. And this year I've been able to see firsthand that care and attention taken when compiling um, the data. And it, it is a truly very impressive operation. So uh, to the economics team, a big thanks for all your hard work and late nights um, uh, over the last few months. Um, Everybody owes you uh, a debt of gratitude. Also, a big thanks to the team from Heriot Watt University, uh, led by Professor Mark Schaefer, who again this year, uh, in in line with many of the the past years, have provided huge amounts of help and support um, to us in compiling the stats review. It wouldn't be possible to do this without the, the help from Harriet Watt University. And I think Mark and some of the team are here today. So a big thanks uh, to you as well. It's a great honour for me to present this year's review of 2014 
And what a year to review, as Bob just said. The US shale revolution scaled new heights, oil prices plummeted, carbon emissions are estimated to have grown at one of their slowest rates for over 15 years. In, in recent years, my predecessor, Christoph Rule spoke of the eerie calm that, that had uh, befallen energy markets. The events of last year provide a stark reminder that in energy, after a calm comes the storm. Uncertainty and volatility are the norm, not the exception. The turbulent and unsettled conditions that characterised global energy markets in 2014 were driven by many factors. Many of them were specific to particular markets and particular fuels. But there are also a number of sort of broader, more encompassing forces acting across the world of energy, helping to shape the global energy landscape. And I think I'd highlight three in particular, very much echoing the points uh, that, that Bob just highlighted. First was the continuing shale revolution in the US. In China, 2014 was the year of the horse. In energy, 2014 was the year of the American eagle, as the US shale revolution um, went from strength to strength. At its height last year, more than 1,800 rigs were operating the major U.S. and oil and gas plays, drilling around 40,000 new wells. Capital spending in the shale industry is estimated to have reached around $120 billion in 2014, more than double its, its, its value five years earlier. The increase in productivity was even more striking, with productivity in tight oil plays increasing sevenfold since 2007. The results were equally startling. US oil production rose by 1.6 million barrels in 2014, by far the largest growth in the world, and the first time any country had increased its production by more than 1 million barrels a day for three consecutive years. As a result, US oil production in 2014 exceeded its previous peak level set in 1970, peak oil indeed. And perhaps most significant of all, as shown in this chart here, the US passed both Saudi Arabia and Russia to become the world's largest oil producer for the first time since 1975. US shale gas also continued to grow strongly, with US production accounting for nearly 80% of the total increase in global gas supplies in 2014. Over the past 10 years, U.S. shale gas has accounted for roughly half of the total increase in global supplies of natural gas. The revised data in this year's review suggests that the U.S. overtook Russia in 2013 to be the world's largest producer of oil and gas combined. We are truly witnessing a changing of the guard of global energy suppliers. The implications of the shale revolution for the US are profound. The US net imports of oil in 2014 were less than half of their 2005 peak levels. The US is no longer the world's largest oil importer. That dubious honour now belongs to China. In 2007, just prior to the financial crisis, the US was running a current account deficit of 5% of GDP. And this, as you may, may remember, was, was a key part of the so-called global imbalances, which many economists uh, think underpinned the financial crisis. Importantly, US energy imports 
accounted for around half of that deficit. Just seven years later, in 2014, US imports comprised just 1% of GDP. And US production, as shown here, accounted for almost 90% of its energy needs, a level not reached since the mid-1980s. As we'll come on to see, the impact of the US shower revolution spread far beyond the lower 48. The second factor I think I'd highlight driving global energy markets last year, as Bob said, were developments in China. If the American eagle soared in 2014, the Chinese horse quickened its pace of adjustment. Chinese GDP growth slowed to 7.4% in 2014, significantly weaker than the double-digit growth rates we'd come used to in the first 10 years or so of this century. This slowing was accompanied by a continuing shift in the pattern of growth, with some parts of industrial production, and in particular real estate investment, decelerating sharply. As a consequence, growth in some of China's most energy-intensive sectors, such as iron, steel and cement, shown here in the chart, sectors which had thrived during China's rapid industrialisation, they virtually collapsed in 2014. Just look at these numbers here. These are numbers of growth rates of around 1% or 2%. They collapsed as more service-orientated parts of the economy came to the fore. And it was this changing pattern of economic growth which caused the growth of China's energy demand to, to slow, as Bob was saying, to slow sharply to just 2.6% in 2014, less than half its average over the past 10 years, and the weakest rate of growth we've seen since the late 1990s. Although the extent of the slowdown in China's energy growth is striking, the implied reduction in energy intensity, i.e. the reduction in the average amount of energy needed to produce each unit of GDP, as shown here on the chart on the left, that, that reduction we saw last year was not particularly exceptional relative to that seen over the past 20 years or so. As you can see, this is not a complete outlier here. So in that sense, the slowdown in China's energy consumption doesn't look extraordinary or without precedent. Even so, I think there are good reasons for thinking that this faster pace of energy reduction may not signal the beginning of a new trend. There must be a question if those exceptionally low levels of growth reached in those energy thirsty sectors we just looked at, iron, steel and cement, those very low levels, can they really be sustained? And if not, that perhaps points to the possibility of some bounce back in energy demand. More generally, we might expect to see that the rate of decline in China's energy intensity starts to taper off as it gradually converges on, on, on the levels of more developed economies, as shown here on the chart on the right. <coughs> Monitoring those developments will be a key task for future statistical reviews. For this year's review, the focus is on tracing out the implications of this sharp slowing in the growth of the world's largest energy market. The third overarching factor I would highlight, acting across the global energy landscapes in 2014, was this continuous, continuing focus on climate and environmental issues. Climate concerns were an obvious focus in 2014 as global leaders and campaigners mapped their course to Paris at the end of this year. And considerable attention was also placed on broader environmental concerns 
with a number of significant regulatory announcements, including in both the US and China. These policy initiatives, together with changing societal preferences and technological improvements, have, as we will see, an important bearing on the fuel mix and the role of non-fossil fuels. The focus on climate and environmental issues also garners significant attention for development in reserves of fossil fuels. Total proved reserves of fossil, fuel, of fossil fuels were essentially unchanged last year. The big picture remains one of abundant reserves, with new resources of energy being discovered more quickly than they are consumed. Total proved reserves of oil and gas, for example, in 2014, were more than double the level in 1980 when our data begin. The issue is not whether we will run out of fossil fuels, but rather how we should use those ample reserves in an efficient and sustainable way. In that, in that, in that context, as, as Bob stressed, it's really important not to lose sight of the fact that over one billion people on our planet don't currently have access to, to electricity. For those most affected regions, particularly in Africa and India, the policymakers face a pressing need to improve the availability and the accessibility of energy necessary for the well-being of their citizens and for the strength of their economies. And that imperative will have an important bearing on energy developments in those regions. So how did these different forces, the strength of US shale, the rebalancing of the Chinese economy, the continued focus on climate and environmental issues play out last year across the global energy markets. Standing back for a moment from the sort of the particular gales affecting some markets, the dark clouds looming over others, the big overriding picture of 2014 was one of surprisingly weak growth in energy demand, coupled with greater resilience in production growth and a consequent weakening in, in energy prices. As Bob said, growth of primary energy consumption, sh shown here, slowed to just 0.9% last year, which, absent the financial crisis, is the slowest growth of energy demand since the late 1990s. As in much of the past decade, all of the increase in demand for, for energy was from emerging economies with energy consumption in the OECD continuing to fall. The general weakness in energy demand wasn't restricted solely to China. Energy consumption grew more slowly than recent averages in all regions, with the exception of, of North America and, and Africa, with a notable fall in EU demand. As you can see from this chart, the sharp deceleration in energy demand occurred despite the global economy expanding at a similar rate to 2013. You can see here, the orange line here showing global GDP growth. Global GDP growth grew by 3.3% in 2014, exactly in line with its growth rate in 2013. Instead, the slowdown in energy demand reflected a further fall in energy intensity. There's improving efficiency of the economies shown here by the green bars. A significant part of that reduction can be traced to one-off weather impacts, particularly in the EU, and I'll come on to that. But over and above that was the impact from the rebalancing of the Chinese economy. In terms of the fuel mix, oil 
was the fastest growing fossil fuel for the first time since 1997. Even so, it still lost share within primary energy for the 15th consecutive year. And as Bob said, coal and gas also grew slowly and lost ground. The share of non-fossil fuels reached an all-time high of almost 14%, with the shares of hydro, nuclear and renewables all increasing. On the supply side, energy production grew by 1.4% in 2014, similar to 2013, although weaker than its 10-year average. The relative stability in, in aggregate supply growth, however, marks significant differences across fuels, with a sharp acceleration in oil supply offset by the first decline in coal production since the Asian financial crisis in 1998. Although developing economies accounted for all the increase in energy demand, supply growth was dominated by the OECD, which accounted for over 80% of the increase in supply. So all of the increase in demand come from developing economies 80% of the the supply came from the OECD. Over the past 10 years or so, the OECD has enjoyed a significant improvement in its energy balance. So shown here is a sort of increase in in net exports of of OECD's net exports of energy, shown here as a share of consumption, with the non-OECD balancing deteriorating over that period. So quite a shift in this sort of in the patterns of growth of demand and supply across the, across the economy across the globe in line with this the point Bob was making in terms of energy increasingly flowing from west to east. So that's if you like a sort of ten thousand feet overview of last year's data. To get at the stories underpinning those developments, we need to get closer to the ground by looking at the individual fuels. And I'll start first with oil. Oil was at the epicentre of the 2014 energy storm, as a number of those overarching forces we talked about came together. The data for 2014 as a whole make clear that the sharp fall in oil prices was a supply story. The increase in oil consumption in 2014 was very close to its recent historical average, there was nothing particularly exceptional about demand growth in 2014. In contrast, as you can see really quite plainly here in the chart, supply growth last year was almost off the charts, with global production increasing by over 2 million barrels a day, more than double its 10-year average. This strength was driven by non-OPEC production, which increased by 2.1 million barrels a day in 2014, the largest increase on record. U.S. production predictably uh, set the pace, as we've already said, but this strength wasn't solely restricted to the lower 48. Canada and Brazil also enjoyed record increases with output in both those countries reaching record high levels. In contrast, OPEC production was broadly unchanged, although the share of production across OPEC members continued to be affected by supply disruptions in the wake of the Arab Spring. On the demand side, oil consumption grew by 0.8 million barrels a day, entirely driven by increases in non-OEC demand, particular China. The growth in Chinese consumption was a little below its recent historical average, 
but still accounted for almost half of the increase in global oil demand. As in 2013, the gains in Chinese oil demand were driven by gasoline consumption, supported by the increasing purchasing power of of Chinese households. In In contrast, growth in the demand for fuels such as diesel, which are more exposed to the rebalancing of the economy away from heavy industry and away from infrastructure spending, remained very weak by historical standards. That eerie calm that I referred to earlier that pervaded oil markets during 2011 to 13 reflected two powerful forces coincidentally offsetting each other. US tight oil powered away throughout much of this period, but at the same time, Middle East and North African supply was retarded by the events surrounding the Arab Spring. The net effect of these two forces was that global oil supply increased by an annual average of just over 1 million barrels a day in 2011 to 13, broadly in line with with global consumption. That precarious balancing act came to an abrupt end last year. The exceptional growth in non-OPEC supply far exceeded incremental supply disruptions, which, together with a softening the growth of oil consumption relative to 2013, led to a growing supply imbalance and a consequent build-up of inventories. As you can see here in the the chart on the left here, OECD oil inventories began the year at relatively low levels, but rose steadily through the year, increasing by almost 150 million barrels um, over 2014 as a whole. More recent data suggests that this stock build continued through the first part of this year, with OECD stocks close to a 10-year high. Not surprisingly, given the centre of the supply strength, this build-up of stocks was most pronounced in the US, with US commercial crude stocks at their highest level since 1930. The price impact of this supply imbalance grew only gradually, such that dated Brent averaged $109 in the first half of 2014, which is pretty much in line with its 2013 average. But as supply balance widened, stocks accumulated and prices began to fall. (coughs) Dated Brent hit, shown here on the chart on the right, peaked in the second half of June, and Brent Ford markets, which had generally been backward-dated since 2011, moved into Katango in July. Um, uh, in, in, in July. My guess is the possibility that OPEC may respond to the grow, growing abundance of supply by reducing its production targets probably provided some support to prices through the summer and the autumn of last year, with dated Brent drifting down to around $80 by the time of the OPEC meeting in, in late November. But the decision by OPEC to maintain its production levels and protect its market share broke the market's back. (coughs) Prices fell sharply, with dated Brent ending the year at around $55, reaching a daily low of around $45 in mid-January. One key message to draw from these events is that even in the oil market, prices work. The high levels of innovation and investment driving the record supply gains which underpin the current surplus were set in motion by a decade of high 
oil prices. And likewise, the market now appears to be responding to the prompt of lower oil prices. Data so far this year point to a strengthening of demand growth, and the number of US oil rigs has more than halved since its peak in October last year. The exceptional strength of crude supplies spurred a noticeable increase in refinery runs, shown here by the chart on the left, which are up over 1 million barrels a day in 2014, more than double their 10-year average. Refinery runs outstripped the increase in product demand as refineries were incentivized to increase product stocks and so reduce pressure on crude storage. And as this chart makes clear, shown in the green bars here, US refineries led the way with throughputs increasing by over half a million barrels a day, the largest annual increase we've seen since the mid-1980s, driven by the strength of US supplies and the consequent discounting of US crude prices. This lengthening in refinery runs was broadly matched by by the expansion in refining capacity, Even with material reductions in the OECD, capacity still increased by 1.3 million barrels a day last year. And as shown on the chart at the right, spare capacity edged higher to almost 7 million barrels a day above its level in 2005, when we think the global utilisation rate was close to its effective maximum. Improvements within the U.S. infrastructure meant that despite this bumper growth in North American supply, crude differentials narrowed last year. The average Brent WTI differential fell to around $5.5 a barrel in 2014, almost half its level in 2013, shown here on the chart on the left. And the spread between WTI and Western Canadian Select, WCS, narrowed from almost $25 a barrel to less than $20 a barrel in 2014, and as you can see, has continued to fall um, um, through the first half of this year. That's all I wanted to say in terms of the oil market. We turn next um, to natural gas. The main story on, on natural gas was one of exceptionally weak demand growth. As Bob said, global gas Product consumption grew by just 0.4% in 2014, which, with the exception of the financial crisis, is the weakest rate of growth for almost 20 years. In contrast, growth in gas production was relatively robust, causing gas prices, shown here on the chart on the right, to decline through the course of the year. The weakness in global gas consumption in 2014 was driven in large part by EU demand, which you can see here fell by almost 12% in in 2014, the largest decline decline in EU demand on record. A large part, so what's going on in terms of European demand, a large part of this weakness appears to stem from the exceptionally mild winter enjoyed in Europe last year. Uh, If you're like me, I can't remember uh, it being exceptionally mild uh, last year, but trust me, uh, it was. Um, With so-called heating degree days in Europe, which is sort of a weighted measure of how many times you have to turn on uh, uh, your temp to turn on the heating at one of their lowest levels on record. So this chart here 
plots out movements in, in these, those so-called heating degree days and compares it with gas consumption. And given the past sensitivity of, of gas demand to, to variations in temperature, last year's mild winter on its own probably accounts for the lion's share of the decline in EU demand. So it's not some great puzzle or some great structural issue going on. It was just a function of the fact that um, European winter was very mild last year. The weakness in European demand was further compounded um, by gas continuing to lose share in the power sector, especially to non-fossil fuels. On the supply side within Europe, EU gas production, shown here in these these brown bars, fell by almost 10%, taking European production to its lowest level since the early 1970s. But the extent of the fall in demand due to this weather, meant that despite this reduction in European gas output, gas imports to the EU also declined sharply, with pipeline imports from Russia and elsewhere falling by almost 9%, their largest decline on record. The weakness in pipeline gas trade was compounded by the dispute between Russia and Ukraine, which resulted in Russia's gas exports to Ukraine being turned off between June and December of last year. All told, global gas pipeline trade fell by over 6% in 2014, the largest decline since our trade data began in 1989, and causing total gas trade, shown here by the chart on the right, to fall for only the second time on record. If we move away from Europe, gas consumption in the Asia-Pacific was also relatively subdued, with growth slowing to 2% in 2014, significantly weaker than its 10-year average. And, yes, you guessed it, in in net terms, that slowing can be counted for by the slowing in Chinese um, energy demand, which saw growth in Chinese gas consumption decline from over 13% to just, and I say just, um, around 8.5% last year. So still strong growth in Chinese gas consumption, but significantly slower than what we saw in the previous year. And you'll see a a familiar recurring theme coming on here. The main exception to this story of global gas weakness was, of course, the US. Where gas uh, gas production increased by over 6%, almost double its 10-year average. And as this chart highlights, accounting for almost 80% of the increase in global gas production. All All of that growth was due to increases in shale gas, shown here by these green bars which grew by over 13% last year, with a vast majority of that growth coming from Marcellus and Utica shale. If we turn next to coal, for many years, the fortunes of coal have been inextricably linked to China. To a large extent, China is coal. As this chart makes clear, that was true as China industrialised rapidly causing coal to be the fastest-growing fossil fuel over the first 10 years or so of this century. And it was equally true in 2014, as Chinese demand broke sharply and coal became the slowest-growing fossil fuel. For me, as you wade through all these thousands of statistics in the, in the BP Stats Review, for me, I think perhaps the single most striking number in the whole of this year's Stats Review is China's coal consumption which is estimated to essentially stalled in 2014, growing by just 0.1%, 
compared to 2% in 2013 and an average of almost 6% over the past 10 years. So what's driving this pause in the growth of China's coal consumption? In part, um, so what this chart does here, it compares the growth rate in, 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 of, of China's coal in 2013 and compares it with the growth rate in the essential this pause in 2014. And what this chart makes clear, in part, um, this slowdown is a natural consequence of the general slowdown, um, generalised slowdown in Chinese energy demand. As the growth in Chinese energy demand slowed, the growth in coal consumption naturally slowed with it. This generalised weakening, shown here in the, by the purple bar, we think can account for around two-thirds of the slowdown in China's coal consumption. Over and above that, coal lost out relative to other fuels um, in China. Some of that lost ground reflects, reflected the fact that coal was disproportionately exposed to the industrial sectors most severely affected by the economic rebalancing, you know, the iron, steel and construction that we just looked at earlier with those, very, with those growth rates collapsing. Coal also lost share in the power sector, in part as a result of exceptionally strong growth in Chinese hydropower as new capacity came on stream and high levels of rainfall buoyed capacity utilisation. So, in answer to the question, what drove uh, the pause in China's coal consumption, it looks like a mix of both structural and one-off erratic effects. Outside of China, India provided the main source of strength for the global coal market, where both consumption and production grew strongly and posted the largest increments to global, to global demand and supply of coal. The vast majority of the increased demand for coal in India came from the power sector, enabling total power generation in India to increase by almost 10% in 2014, its strongest rate of increase since 1989. In that context, it's worth remembering that India has one of the largest numbers of people without access to electricity. In a similar vein, Africa also increased its consumption of coal in 2014. We have to be careful about not being too sweeping in our judgments about the use of coal. If we turn next to non-fossil fuels... Despite a backdrop of slowing energy demand and weak growth in fossil fuels, non-fossil fuels continue to grow robustly, increasing by 3.7% in 2014, comfortably above their 10-year average. And as, you, as this chart makes clear by looking at the bar, the 2014 bar here, the relative resilience of non-fossil fuels meant that they, that they provided a bigger contribution to global energy growth than fossil fuels in 2014. That's the first time that has happened for over 20 years, other than when, when the world economy has been in recession. And this despite the fact that non-fossil fuels accounted for less than 15% of total primary energy. Global hydropower grew by 2% in 2014, slower than its 10-year average. And nuclear power grew by 1.8%, with the biggest boost provided by South Korea as three nuclear reactors uh, were restarted. For renewable energy, shown here by the orange bar, there's both a half-fall 
and a half-empty story. The half-full story is that, is that growth in renewables, including biofuels, accounted for almost a third of the total increase in primary energy. Almost a third. And they provided more than 40% of the increase in power generation. So these are really quite significant contributions. Added to that, solar power continued to grow at breakneck speeds in 2014. The half-empty story is that although growth of renewables remained, re- remained robust in 2014, it was below its 10-year average and was, in fact, its slowest rate of growth since 2003. This slowdown was driven by wind power, which grew at less than half its 10-year rate in 2014, in part reflecting less public policy support in, in the EU and the US. And the half-empty interpretation is reinforced by the fact that, despite this strong growth, renewables accounted for only 3% of of primary energy in 2014. The half-full and the half-empty stories are reconciled by the fact that the year-to-year growth of renewable energy is relatively insensitive to changes in demand conditions. You can see again this very clearly from the chart bar on the right. Renewables continue to grow relatively robustly in 2014, despite the sharp slowdown in overall energy demand. And as such, renewables accounted for a bigger proportion of this smaller increase in overall energy demand. Put differently, you can also see this very clearly from the chart, the greater sensitivity of fossil fuels to market conditions meant that, in effect, they act as a swing energy source in response to the demand slowdown. Turning finally um, to to carbon emissions, as Bob said, the slower growth of energy demand, together with the shift in the fuel mix, had important implications for the growth of carbon emissions. In particular, global carbon emissions from energy use are estimated to have grown by just 0.5% in 2014, the slowest rate of growth for over 15 years, other than in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. And that growth of 0.5% compares with an average annual growth rate over the past 10 years of of around 2%. And this chart compares the growth rate of carbon emissions in 2014 and compares it to that annual, uh, that 10-year average rate of, of 2%. And as you can see, we think around a quarter of the slower rate of carbon emissions in 2014 relative to that 10-year average can be attributed to weaker GDP growth, shown in the orange bar. Global GDP on a PPP basis grew by around 3.3% in 2014, compared with a 10-year average of 3.7%. The most important driver, accounting for around half of of the slower rate of emissions, was the faster rate of improvement in energy intensity, shown here by the purple bar. This largely reflects the changing structure of the Chinese economy, together with with last year's unusually mild winter causing that one-off fall in heating demand. The remainder of the slower growth reflects the greater than average reduction in carbon intensity associated with the change in fuel mix in 2014, particularly the slowdown in coal, and the increasing contribution from non-fossil fuels. 
If we look at this same comparison, comparing carbon emissions in 2014 with a 10-year average, but this time look at it in terms of the contributions of different geographical regions, it's clear that the vast majority of the slowdown in carbon emissions can be attributed to China, reflecting both the sharp slowdown in consumption growth and the shift in, in fuel mix away from coal. The one trillion tonne question is whether these developments in China are likely to persist, so possibly signalling the beginning of a lower trend in emissions growth, or whether they're likely to reverse in the near future. As we saw earlier, there are good reasons for thinking that some of the slowdown in the growth of Chinese carbon emissions was part of this broader structural rebalancing of the economy that is taking place and is likely to continue. But the extent of the slowdown in 2014 also probably reflects a number of one-off and erratic factors unlikely to be repeated and which may even be partially reversed. So let me just uh, wrap up and conclude Following the earlier calm, more normal, stormy conditions returned to the world of energy last year. In years to come, I wonder if it's possible that 2014 may come to be seen as something of a watershed for the energy industry. Not so much because of the near-term volatility associated with the sharp fall in oil prices and the various adjustments that has triggered, that volatility is more a return to business as usual. But rather because some of the longer-term trends, trends which are likely to have a huge bearing on the shape of the energy sector over coming years, came to the fore. The heights scaled by the US shale revolution sparking a new world order of energy supplies. The rebalancing of the Chinese economy and its implications for global energy demand and increasing focus on climate and environmental issues as we all try to tackle the twin challenges of using energy efficiently and sustainably whilst ensuring it is available and affordable to those that need it most. Lots of interesting issues for future editions of the BP Stats Review. Thank you. Thank you.